It is good to see everyone this evening. I, I wonder if you happen to be a little grumpy. I, I know I do. Um, Grace can attest to that. If, if things don't go the way I expect them to go, grumpiness sets in pretty quick. Um, I may have a plan for the day, and one of the first, fastest ways you can get me to become grumpy is for Grace to go and add something to my list that wasn't there, and it throws the whole schedule off, and then I'm grumpy. Or if one of the first things on the list doesn't go the way I expected it to, and it takes much, much longer, and now my list schedule for the day is in jeopardy, suddenly I'm grumpy. I struggle when frustrations or I struggle with frustrations, I probably should say, if reality doesn't match my expectations. As we'll see tonight, as we go into the last chapter of Jonah, I'm not alone, really, when it comes to this less-than-desirable trait. Jonah has, as you know, four short chapters. Last week, we looked at the brief account of Jonah proclaiming his message of doom from the city of Nineveh. As far as we can tell from the, the record that we have, his, his sermon was limited to five words. Um, he may proclaim more, but we only have five words recorded in the original. And we also have what appears like he re- recorded that he only proclaimed those five words for a single day as he began walking through the city. For one day, he, he said these things to the people he met, and that was it. The citywide revival began. The, the people began to repent. The king, we saw, joined the repentance. And, and then, so far as, as, as it went, uh, once it got to the king, he made it the official policy of the city that all of the city would repent. Repentance was the state position. It was an official requirement of every citizen. Every person, every beast, they were to show evidence of repentance. The, the people were to turn from their wickedness. And they all hoped that, that God would relent of this doom that, that Jonah had proclaimed, that God might relent and not destroy the city as predicted. Of course, the, the final word we had last week was that, that God did indeed relent and, and did not bring destruction upon the city. As with the rest of the book, I, I assume that most of you are familiar with the final chapter of, of this book that, that we'll be walking through this evening. I, I know that you are likely people that have read this story many times, heard it. You know about the plant that gives Jonah temporary shelter from the heat. I don't think that's a spoiler tonight. You, you know about Jonah's frustrations when, when the plant dies. You, you know the general flow of the story. Yet, yet I hope as we walk through the text a little more carefully tonight, maybe than when you read through it on your Bible reading plan, that, that we'll all see something new and that maybe we can understand God more fully because of our time together this evening. We will draw an overall lesson from our chapter, as we have for the first three nights in this series. But once again, I'm going to save that till the end. After we've worked our way through the text, when we get to the end, we'll we'll bring it together and, and see what the overall lesson might be. This evening, I'm going to divide our chapter into three sections, and we'll walk through them one at a time. Verses 1 through 4 record what will be our first section. They record Jonah's anger over deliverance. His anger over deliverance. When it came to God saving Jonah from death in in chapter 1 and 2, Jonah was quite happy. When it came to God saving the Ninevites from death, 
Not so much. Look at verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? You may remember that that Jonah disappeared in the last half of chapter 3. The the focus shifted in the chapter, and and it was all focused on Ninevites and, and their repentance. Now Jonah suddenly reappears. You may also recall that last week there was a word play on the word evil. In the, the last part of the chapter, the, the people turned from their evil in order to avoid the evil that God had pronounced on them. The, that, that Hebrew word evil can be used for moral wrongdoing as well as just natural disaster type of, of wrongdoing. And that word play was used, and it continues now in verse 1, again, as, as we pick up that general word for evil. The, the words that we have translated, it greatly displeased Jonah, or literally, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. The author is, is stating in no uncertain terms that the God's relenting, the, this relenting where God turned from his evil, brought displeasure to Jonah. He was angry. It was evil to Jonah with a great evil that God relented of his evil because the people turned from their evil. Now, we don't know why Jonah responded with so much anger to the survival of the Ninevites. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the series that that Jonah is a rough contemporary with Hosea, and, and Hosea is the prophet, that the first prophet, through whom God specifically announces that will be the Syrians who destroy Israel. This, this means that if Hosea prophesied before Jonah, then Jonah would be aware that, that God had predicted that this people, this, this people that was centered in the capital of, of Nineveh, they are the ones that God is going to use to destroy Jonah's people. But it's only an if, because we don't know if Hosea prophesied before or after Jonah. If Hosea had prophesied, then Jonah may have hoped that, that Nineveh's destruction would would either indicate that God had changed his mind about Israel's destruction, or maybe Jonah was hoping that Ninevites' destruction would push the prophecy of Israel's destruction far into the future because it would take the Syrians many years and even generations to recover. We don't know why Jonah became angry, why he hoped Nineveh would be destroyed. There, there is another possible reason that, that Jonah became angry over Nineveh's survival in that maybe he hoped that when the city was destroyed that that would serve as a powerful object lesson to Israel and, and move Israel to repentance. Remember, Jonah had been a prophet in Israel. Surely as a prophet in Israel, he had called for Israel's repentance. Israel was a sinful nation at this time, but it was also a prosperous one. That's why most of the... the the prophets like Jonah that God sent to Israel were largely ignored. The, the people believed that, that their prosperity was indication that, that God was overlooking their evil. Well, 
Maybe Jonah was hoping if the most powerful nation on the world, a nation of, of great prosperity, the Syrians, if suddenly they had their capital wiped out by God, then maybe that would shake the people up in Israel and they'd recognize that no one's safe if they're involved in evil. Again, we don't know why Jonah is angry over God's relenting. But clearly he is. Our author works very hard to make that clear. He, he works to create a contrast between the joy that Jonah had over his rescue at the beginning of the book and the, the anger now that he has over the deliverance of Nineveh. You, you may recall, Jonah did not pray until he was rescued in chapter 2. Well, the next time we have Jonah praying is here in verse 2. And his prayer... In this prayer that Jonah gives here in verse 2, we, we finally learn why Jonah tried to flee back there in chapter 1. Why he, he sought to run away from the divine commission that, that God gave him and, and went towards Tarshish instead of Nineveh. We're told in his prayer that he was afraid God would relent. And that was not what Jonah wanted. Why did Jonah fear that God might relent? Well, look. Jonah understood the character of God. Look what he says. He know. What he says he knows. He knew that God was compassionate and gracious. God was slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Jonah knew all that about God because. That's what God told Moses all the way back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. These are well-known attributes of God's character, that he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgive iniquity, transgressions and sin. That's God as he revealed himself on Mount Sinai. Every Israelite should know these things about God. Certainly a prophet like Jonah should know them. So, it's no surprise when we see Jonah say these kinds of things in his prayer. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger. I knew you're abundant in loving kindness. You're one who relate, relents concerning calamity. It's no surprise to see Jonah express these traits in a prayer of God because that's the God of Israel for generations. It is a great surprise to see Jonah view these traits of God's character as a weakness in God's overall makeup. When you look at Jonah's prayer, he appears to view God's compassion and God's slowness to anger as a negative aspect because these traits have moved God to relent concerning the destruction of Ninevites. He's taking these well-known characteristics of God and viewing them as negatives rather than positives because it caused God to do something Jonah didn't want to see happen. It's interesting that Jonah ends his first prayer in chapter 2 with observation. If you recall, way back in chapter 2, verse 9, the very last words he says, his observation is, salvation is from the Lord. Back in chapter 2, Jonah is rejoicing over his, his personal salvation from God. Salvation is from the Lord. It's kind of interesting that, that the second time we have Jonah praying, his prayer is prompted by salvation again. Salvation is from the Lord. God's salvation comes to Nineveh. One consistent aspect between the two prayers is that Jonah remains focused on himself. In chapter 2, his joy was because God 
did something that served him. In chapter 4, his prayer is because God did something that Jonah did not think served him. His focus is on self. Look carefully at this prayer in verses 2 and 3. Sure, Jonah is praying to God, but his focus is on himself. Nine times in the short verse, at least in the original Hebrews, nine times in, in the short little prayer, Jonah uses I or my or me. Our English translations may drop one or two of them, but, but the original Hebrew, nine times, Jonah uses a personal pronoun. His focus is on himself. When Jonah was sinking under the waves in chapter 2, he called out to God to preserve his life. Now he calls out to God to end his life. Jonah's despondency here over God's gracious character is so great that he wants to die. You might say Jonah's an emotional mess at this point. That's how strong his, his state is. God, I want to die because your character is gracious. Many has, have observed over various times that suicide is the ultimate selfish act. It, it comes when the entire focus is on self. A person is so focused on himself or herself that, that he or she cannot envision any other way to exert control over the situation to, to get a result that, that, that personally has some control than, than commit suicide. Well, that's Jonah here. He is so focused on himself. He is so focused on his desire that he wishes to die. He knows there's no chance for him to override God's decision. Jonah has no control over the situation, so he, he tries to exert a minor control by, by saying, God, take my life. The Lord responds to Jonah with three brief words. It, it takes a few more than that translated in English, but, but God only gives three words. And it's clear that these three words form a brief question. We have it translated, do you have a good reason to be angry? God's challenging Jonah. Clearly you're angry, do you have a good reason for it? We, as parents, frequently will say things like that to our children when we see them angry. We want them to stop and think about, why are you behaving this way? Why are you exerting this anger when it's misplaced? Well, we don't have any response from Jonah. At least none's recorded here, so I think it's clear he did not respond to God verbally. Instead, he simply ends his communication with God in a huff and walks out of the city. Verses 1 through 4 here, they, they record Jonah's anger over deliverance. His anger over God's deliverance of Nineveh. Well, in verses 5 through 9, Jonah's angry again. His anger is not done yet. He's angry again. And this time, his anger comes over destruction. Jonah's anger over destruction. Verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, 
I have good reason to be angry, even to death. As far as we can tell, Jonah does not deliver any additional proclamations to the city. But apparently he does decide to hang around for a while. He, he, he finds a place where he can watch and we're told see. He's, he wants to see what is going to happen to the city. Maybe he thought God would reconsider once more and, and still bring destruction on the city. Or maybe he just wanted to hang around and sulk. That, that's a possibility as well, I'm sure. The, the way the text is, is constructed, Jonah's action here, parking himself out the city, that, that's his reaction to, to God's question about whether he has a good reason to be angry or not. He was angry, and God said, do you have a good reason? He goes off and sits in a, in a stink. His response to God is, wait and see what will happen. Our author uses the same verb in verse 5 for the word see as was used in verse 10 of chapter 3. In chapter 10, verse, or chapter 3, verse 10, God saw that the, the Ninevites repented of their sin. Now Jonah sees what's happening. Uh, of course, the, the climate, as I'm sure you know, around Nineveh is hot. From, from what I read, it's not unusual for the days to, to reach somewhere around 110 degrees at the time of year, or many times of the year. We don't know when Jonah's there, but hot is, is, is there. Jonah selects this site where he can watch the city, but apparently there's no natural shelter in, in the campsite that he chooses. It doesn't have any natural shade, so Jonah constructs a, a shelter of some sort for himself. Most likely he gathers some branches and, and some leaves and he puts them over his head, but that shelter like that would suffice for a few days, but soon those leaves would dry up and, and the sun would again start coming through and it would be hot. The prophet's sitting here during this vigil and baking in the sun. Well, that's the backdrop in, in which God begins to intervene once again in Jonah's life. We, we've already observed that the God is sovereign over his creation. In chapter 1, God hurled a storm at Jonah. He, he then also appointed a, a special fish to swallow and Jonah, and then later commanded that fish to vomit Jonah at his commands. So, so God has demonstrated sovereignty over creation. But now three times in, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we find the same wording as it was used with the great fish. God appointed a divine commission. God appoints, he commissions various elements of his created world to interact in particular ways with Jonah. First, God appoints a plant to grow over the shelter, a plant that provides cooling shade. We, we don't know what type of plant it is. This, the word in the Hebrew is a unique word. It's only found here in Scripture, so no one knows for sure what kind of plant, but obviously it's some sort of a fast-growing vine with abundant leaves of some sort. What we do know is the plant delivered Jonah from his discomfort. It gave him well-needed shade. There's a lot packed into the, the words of verse 6. For example, the, the word that we have translated discomfort. Uh, again, is that generic word for evil. That this plant delivered Jonah from his evil. Jonah was mad that the Ninevites were delivered from their evil, that, that calamity of destruction. But he was extremely happy that he was delivered from his evil, that the scorching sun. Re remember, he took up this vigil here in an angry mood. He, he, he was 
beyond grumpy. Now he's extremely happy. The, the expression that, that's used in verse 6 there at the end is one that, that exceeds any other expressions of joy in the book. Jonah is practically giddy over this, this vine that, that grows up and provides him shelter. Which brings us to the, the second divine commission. God appoints a worm. Jonah is not allowed to enjoy the plant for long. The, the very morning after his, his giddy joy, Jonah sends a, a worm to attack the plant. Uh, again, we, we don't know the exact kind of worm, but, but that's not important. What is important is that, that the worm is, is God's agent. It, it shows that the God can deliver and God can destroy. The plant shows his deliverance, but the worm shows his destruction. We should know, while, while destruction has clearly been a central theme in this book, I mean, from the beginning to end, we, we keep having destruction as this ominous backstory to the book, this hovering over it. But the only actual destruction is what we have here in verse 7 with the plant. When the plant is destroyed, the ship and the, the pagan sailors, they, they were delivered from destruction. Jonah is delivered through the fish from his destruction in the sea. The, the city of Nineveh is delivered from destruction through repentance. Only the vine is destroyed. And is destroyed through a divine commission of the worm. God is not finished with his divine commissions, though, with the worm. There, there remains the third divine commission there in, in verse 8. God appoints, again, this time a scorching east wind. Jonah is caught by the wind. He, this wind is blowing off the desert, and he's caught without any protection. The, the vine is gone. The, the fierce wind is be, or the fierce sun is beating down on his head, and, and the wind is sapping his energy. In, in fact, the, the same word is used for the sun beating down as is used for the worm attacking the plant. The worm attacked the plant, and the plant died. Now the sun is attacking Jonah. Jonah's emotional roller coaster continues. His giddy joy now is replaced by extreme despondency again. He, he repeats his words from verse 3, Death is better to me than life. He goes from being giddy to ready to die. Underline these words, though, again, there is a, an implied accusation against God. The first time that Jonah uttered these words, he implied that God was wrong to, to deliver the Ninevites. He was, God was wrong in delivering. Now Jonah is implying that God is wrong to destroy. He's wrong in, in destroying the vine that provided Jonah shade. Essentially, Jonah is denouncing God's right to exercise his divine prerogative of being the sovereign of the universe. Jonah indicated that, that God was wrong in how he's managing his creation because God allowed this worm to kill this plant. Once more, God greets Jonah's death wish with a question. God uses the exact same question as he posed to Jonah in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? The, the words are identical to verse, verse 3. You know, uh, there's the same three words. They're identical. This time, though, God adds a, a, a specific context. In, in verse 4, not 3, rather, in verse, verse 4, 
He said, Jeff, do you have reason to be angry? Now he adds the context about the plant. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah, wallowing here in his self-pity, wallowing in his despondency, this time Jonah answers verbally, I have good reason to be angry, flinging God's words back at him. He, he takes the exact words God uses and flings them back, and then he adds the specific, even unto death. Jonah, in essence, is telling God that, that God is blowing it. God has, has mistreated Jonah throughout. Jonah is suffering now under God's destruction. Jonah was suffering under God's deliverance. Jonah the prof, is the prophet. He's the one that God should care for, but he's being mistreated and God is in the wrong. That's the implication here of, of the complaints that Jonah's lodging. Now, I don't want to go off on application at this point, but I do want to note that, that we need to realize every single time we grumble about what's happening in our lives, in essence, we're accusing God of wrongdoing, just like Jonah is. There, there's no way to avoid the reality that, that grumbling is a veiled accusation to God. We're, we're objecting to his exercise of his sovereign control of the universe. Grumbling about any circumstance, no matter what it is, is ultimately accusing God of treating us wrong. It, grumbling is mining the goodness of God. It's calling God's character into question. Jonah at least takes his grumbling God so that God can correct him. We've we got to at least give Jonah that credit. Often, we take our grumbling elsewhere. We, we take it to others, even more maligning the character of God before others. And then we grumble even more when, when God corrects us through additional trying circumstances, don't we? we? We've looked at Jonah's anger over deliverance. We've looked at Jonah's anger over destruction. But the book of Jonah is not done. It, it contains two final verses. God gets the last words as we have God's rebuke. The last word rests with God. Jonah's replied to God's query regarding the vine that, that he has every right to be angry. So God forces Jonah to look at his own logic, his grossly inconsistent logic. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? In these last two verses, both the you there of verse 10 and the I of verse 11 are emphatic. You see things this way, I look at it this way. God is forcing Jonah to, to compare his compassion against God's compassion. Jonah felt bad that the plant had died, but he did not care at all if the people in Nineveh died. God, by contrast, values people far above a plant. For that matter, God even values animal life, represented by the, by the cattle and other beasts in the city above a plant. A very simple understanding of, of Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrates that, that, that creatures containing lifeblood are, are more precious than plants in God's economy of his universe. And then we have image bearers, 
those that are in the image of God, mankind, people, they're much more precious than any other living creature. That's God's economy. Mankind alone is created with the breath of God. Mankind alone is, is imbued with, with self-awareness. Mankind alone has a moral nature. Mankind alone has an eternal soul. When, when placed into a theological grid, Jonah's position is unjustifiable. It is inherently inconsistent. It's valuing the least precious over the most precious in the theological grid of God's universe. Now, there is debate among scholars about what is meant by the city having 120,000 persons who, who do not know their right hand and their left. The, the common explanation is that this refers to the number of children in the city who have not reached an age of moral awareness. They're, they're not aware of what's right or wrong. The, the challenge that, that comes for scholars is, is that that kind of understanding with even very conservative estimates would place the total population of the city somewhere in excess of 600,000. Well, well, that size of population that exceeds all archaeological evidence of the size of Nineveh at this time in history. So another possibility that's proposed is that 120,000 represents the entire population of Nineveh. And, and, and what God means is that the image bearers in this city, they, they lack the ability to make proper moral judgments. The idea is that if you compare Nineveh to Israel, Israel received a detailed revelation from God. And the Ninevites never have, so, so they could not know what God wanted them because God had not told them. Well, personally, I reject that second option. It, it is clear in chapter 3 that the king understands that the people of Nineveh are engaged in wicked things. Clearly, the king knows wickedness, so the people have an, element, an ability to judge morally. In fact, all mankind has that judge because we stand condemned before holy God as moral creatures. So I, I reject the, the, the idea that they can't make a moral assessment. The king's pronouncement of wickedness is a moral exception, or a moral assessment, rather. I think, myself personally, the number of children refers to, or the number 120,000 does refer to children. And I believe that if we knew more, we would understand how that fit into the total population. Last week, you, you may recall, I mentioned that most likely the name Nineveh was referring to the, the city proper as well as all of the surrounding villages that, that were connected to that main city, what made it a three-day walk. Much like, at times, we'll refer to Detroit, thinking of the entire metropolitan area, not just the, the city proper. So the 120,000 likely includes children from the entire area of that three-day walk radius. Or that, that could then sustain a population that size area of 600,000. At any rate... God's rebuke is clear. Jonah has his priorities all messed up. That's the point. He's messed up because he's so focused on himself and not focused on God. People should be at the top of his concern. God's deliverance of people is a cause for rejoicing, not despondency. Well, that ends the examination of the final chapter here of, of the book of Jonah, but, but I do want to spend a, a few Minutes still considering our truth this evening, our truth. The, the book of Jonah, as I mentioned last week, was written for the nation of Israel. It, it was not written for Assyria. I mentioned last week, you could walk in any Assyrian bookstore from this time onward, and I doubt that you ever found the book of Jonah. It was an Israelite book. There is an immediate lesson in this book for Israel. 
Yet God also preserved the book in Scripture. So that means there's a lesson for us as well. As I've thought through the book, I think there is one lesson for us, but it's a lesson that comes in two parts. We have to build the lesson. The overall lesson begins with the idea that, that God is free to deliver or destroy. That, that's really just a statement that, that says God is sovereign over his universe. Absolutely sovereign, absolutely free. He's free to deliver, he's free to destroy. And that, that idea is clear. God uses the, the Ninevites and the plants to, to teach about his divine freedom. Part of Jonah's problem was that, that Jonah did not want a God who has this level of freedom. Jonah wanted a God that, that he could influence. Maybe even a God they could manipulate. The reality is what Jonah wanted is not that far off from what the pagan sailors thought of their false gods in chapter 1. The reason they prayed to them is they thought they might be able to manipulate them into deliverance. So we can see God's freedom clearly. I wonder how often, though, we are not more like Jonah than we care to admit. The, the simple fact that we often find ourselves grumbling like Jonah suggests that, that we, too, do not always like having a God who is absolutely free. Ask the, the question directly. I, I expect when I look around here that every one of us, if we were asked the question, is God absolutely free, our initial response would be yes. We, we acknowledge God is free. We, we understand our scripture. We know that's what we teach us. But, but when God's freedom goes against our wishes, that's when we find we want a God that, that we can control more than a God who is free. We want to, to have some say in what happens in the circumstances of our lives. But God, the, the, the true God, He's not a God who invites our input or offers us control. He is God. The God of the Bible is the only God, and he does not share his freedom with any other being. And he is free. If we think about it hard enough, we should never really want any other kind of God. Any other kind of God is unworthy of our worship. A God who is not actually completely free, not absolutely free, a God that could be influenced by his creation, is not a God worth worshiping. A God who is gracious and compassionate, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is abundant in loving kindness, a God who relents concerning calamity, a God who can do all these things because he is a free God, that is a God worthy of worship. And that is our God. As scripture shows us, God is free. He is free to deliver or destroy. But that's only half of the lesson that we need to learn from Jonah. The full lesson takes this idea and then it adds a, a significant qualification. God is free to deliver or destroy, but he may not match our expectations when he does. That's the real lesson. That qualification is important to the core principle. God is free to deliver or destroy, but he may not match our expectations when he does. Our problems arise because our expectations are unmet. Yet, 
Our problem often is that instead of examining our expectations and seeing where they're wrong because they don't line up with God's sovereign freedom, we don't do that. We fail to examine our expectations against how God has revealed himself, how God has shown in his word his universe exists. Take Jonah's example. Jonah could not conceive that God might care for the Ninevites. The Ninevites were Assyrians. They they were wicked, evil people. The Ninevites were not Israel. God's concern in Jonah's mind had to elevate Israel above all others. Remember, this book is written for Israel. Even if Jonah did not know Hosea's prophecy that that God was going to use Assyria to to destroy the the nation, that the nation overall soon would. All Israel would find themselves confronting the same mental disconnect as Jonah encountered. How could God deliver Nineveh and then turn around and destroy Israel? These actions did not match up to their expectations. But that's because their expectations failed to comprehend God as God truly is. And yet again, how often do we fall into the same trap of misguided expectations? Why do we think God must preserve the United States because of some sort of Christian heritage? What makes the United States better than any other country in God's economy? Why do we think that God cares for our country more than nations that are hostile to our nation? Why do we have a special in with God? Why do we think that God would never love anything about the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, depending on where you sit in the aisle? Why do we think the other party, whichever it is, deserves God's punishment when ours does not? Same with ethnicities. Why do we expect God to deliver our ethnicity and then destroy another in judgment? Why do we always think that that God is with us and against some other, whoever the other happens to be? Why? Because our sin-filled, pride-based, self-focused expectations causes us to place our expectations on God. And often our expectations are completely out of line with who God is. God is free to deliver or destroy, but he may not match our expectations when he does so. We need to recognize that fact. We need to accept that fact. We need to embrace that fact. Because when we do, that is when we will praise and worship God as we ought. We will praise and worship God when he delivers, and we will praise and worship God when he destroys. We will praise and worship God in his freedom, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. God is free to deliver or destroy, but he may not match our expectations when he does. At the beginning, I mentioned my proneness to grumpiness. Over the years, I've listened to a sufficient number of complaints in, in our church, in our church family, so I know I'm not alone when it comes to being a complainer. The next time you or I find ourselves complaining, we find ourselves being grumpy, we need to remember that we are sinful. Our grumpiness, our complaining is sin. We are rejecting, at that point, God's freedom, his free sovereignty, we are rejecting in some fashion. We need to remember the overall lesson of Jonah. 
God is free to deliver or destroy, but he may not match our expectations when he does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we've been able to finish this book this evening. I thank you for the lesson that you teach us in this book. Father, I pray that you would use this lesson in all of our lives, that you would transform us to be men and women who praise you for who you are. And may we rejoice in the God that we find as we seek you more. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.